Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. I'm your host again, Ian Lewins, one of the consultants in CED, and I am really, really pleased to be joined today uh, by my old mentor, not so old, but but my mentor uh, when I was starting out in paediatrics, um, and that's Dr. Will Carroll. Good afternoon, Will. How are you? I'm fine, thank you, Ian. How are you? I'm excellent. Good. Um, For those of you who don't know Will, uh, Will is incredibly important. Um, He's the Assistant Officer for the MRC-PCH exam, the Editor-in-Chief of Paediatrics and Child Health, and probably most importantly of all, the the co-author of the very famous Sunflower book that all our paediatric students use. Um, So I'm very pleased that Will was able to join us today. Um, Will is a respiratory paediatrician, and I thought we'd talk about some lung function testing today. So if that's okay with you, Will? Of course it is. I think I probably will need lung function testing myself after, or maybe even during this podcast. So apologies <laughs> for anybody if there's still coughing that hasn't been edited out. Okay, so we'll put a cough beep in at some stage. Um, so thinking about then, so think about lung function testing and the bits that I do in ED. And I think I'd have to be very shamefaced and say the amount of lung function testing that we do is probably not as it should be. Um and we have a big panic. And can we? Can anybody find the peak flow meter? Where, where was it last seen? Um, I do know where it is, and occasionally I know where the mouthpieces are as well, which is always is, is a challenge. Should we in ED be doing peak flows? Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yes, um, peak flow is is essential in assessments of, of asthma. Uh, and looking through, I, I was speaking with Mark Levy last week, who was the main author of the National Review of Asthma Deaths, and he would be very critical if a patient had been seen in an emergency department and no attempt had been made to do their peak flow, a child or an adult. So it's in the guidelines. We know we should be doing it, um, but we are not. And um, we're really letting people down because you can easily miss wheezing because the chest Mm. is quiet. Not silent, but quiet. And and unless you've done a peak flow, you really don't know has that patient got better. Now, of course, there are some caveats to that. If the child's too young, you're not going to get some information from peak flow. They're not going to be able to do it. If a child's never done it before, which would be a shame, but if a child's never done it before, you might also have to interpret it with a degree of caution, not least because you don't know what their own personal best peak flow is. Mm. There are occasions going back through the National Review of Asthma Deaths where you can see that peak flow was measured, but no thought whatsoever was given to what that peak flow was as a proportion of the child's best. So you do need some knowledge. You need to know what what might be 100% predicted for peak flow for that child's height. Mm. So that's another limitation because I recognize that in the hurly-burly of emergency departments, not every child in every department always has had a height done, and yet you need that to be able to interpret the peak flow. Yeah, absolutely. And this is going back to one of the things that, that I talk about repeatedly with, with people that I'm teaching is it's simple things done well. It's those four words, simple things done well. Peak flow is not a complicated thing. Doing a height is not a complicated thing. But missing those, as, as you've just sort of said repeatedly, can flag up these children, can't it? Absolutely. And uh, it, they should really have what their peak flow is on their personalised asthma action plan. And every child with asthma should have a personalised action asthma plan. 
it, it really isn't an excuse for seeing them as a doctor and if they've not got one providing them with that mm. there are many templates available you spoke about age there and, and children's capacity to do it. What, in your experience, what, what sort of ages can a ch- do a peak flow properly? Oh, I, from five onwards in my experience and taught with enthusiasm. If they're having an off day or they've got learning disabilities of some description, you might need to go a little bit older. But most five-year-olds can do it. Um, it's not as sensitive a marker of airway obstruction as other forms of lung function. But it at least will get you in the right ballpark. And if we're in ED, then for me, peak flow is a good start. And how about for for kids at home? Now, obviously, I, I don't see those children, but you clearly do. Do you, do, <coughs> do you send kids home with a peak flow meter to do at home at all? Yeah, I, I frequently send them home with a peak flow meter so that they can learn how to blow into a tube so when they come back to clinic, they can actually do their spirometry, which for me is much more informative. Yeah, and I was going to say that's sort of moving on to the next level, isn't it? I mean, is a peak flow something that you would do in your clinic or, or do you sort of move on to the proper spirometry? No, I've kind of moved on. I give them the peak flow meter to learn with and I potentially give them the peak flow meter if that's part of their personalised asthma action plan Okay. so they can know that their peak flow is less than 70 or less than 50% of predicted. But in clinic, I will nearly always do a flow volume loop. And my experience is that a child who's old enough to do a peak flow is old enough to generate a flow volume loop as well. And children as young as five, but more frequently six, and certainly anyone who's seven years and older should be able to do flow volume loops with a little bit of teaching. Okay. So for those people who've not seen the the proper spirometry that you do in clinic what what does it actually involve what does the child have to do and what what information do you get from that so there's a range of spirometers available um when i was a young man and when i first started doing respiratory pediatrics we used to generate volume time curves using old bellows spirometers that simply measured how much volume had been blown into it and tracked that over time. Um, We don't use those now because they're actually quite difficult to see subtler abnormalities on. So we tend to get flow volume loops out of a spirometer and they can cost as little as a thousand pounds each and you can go up and the sky's really the limit depending on what you want. But the standard spirometer at the basic level that gives you a decent flow volume loop is going to be about a thousand pounds and that gives you a lot more information about what's going on with your patients and they're available pretty much everywhere i mean i can't believe there'll be a pediatric department that hasn't got a spirometer of some description and there's some things that that can go wrong with them They, they usually need calibrating and they probably should be calibrated before every clinic use and it depends on the make and model. Some of, some of the more expensive ones are self-calibrating, so you can get away with doing it quite so often. But you just need to check with the make and model that you've got. Okay. And how do you decide which of your patients you're going to do spirometry on? Or does, does pretty much everybody get it? So everyone gets it at every visit who's old enough to do it in my clinic. And that's always been the way. Um, it's certainly something that is recommended in all the national and all the international guidance in managing children with asthma. And whether they're looked after in primary care or secondary care or tertiary care, 
they should all be getting that done. It's a, it's a difficult message. Um, I've worked with very, very good general paediatricians who find that really taxing in that they're seeing two children with constipation, then one with celiac disease, then one with Crohn's disease, and then in the middle of clinic, they've got a child with respiratory problems, and then they think, oh, goodness me, where's the spirometer? How do I get this done? Now, how do I turn it on again? Mm. And, and that takes them some time, and it's a real barrier to its use. Um, but, it, but it shouldn't be. And um, you will know, because you've been in my clinic room, that in Derby, the spirometer always sat on the bed. Um, yeah. It was a rare thing that the patient got on the bed, but the spirometer and the other device that I'm using for monitoring asthma in children, the Excel nitric oxide monitor, would sit on the bed instead of a patient. And what information are you looking for on the spirometer when you're doing the test? So we look at the shape of the flow volume curve. That's, that's the most important thing. Does it look like there's a nice line going up followed by a nice steady line going down? Yeah. Or is there a line going up followed by scalloping of that line where it's difficult to squeeze the air out of the airways? And you get three numbers that mean something. The first number is the FEV1. Yeah. That's the volume that can be squeezed out in one second. That's really the critical number in a lot of pediatric respiratory conditions. It's the thing that most closely matches the function of the child. It's generated by a combination of the elasticity of the airways and also the diameter of the airways. But the FEV1 in general is flow limited, not effort dependent. Once you make more than 90% of effort, it's flow limited. So you get a very, very consistent value if the child's done it well. And those values should be within 5% of each other. Okay. So FEV1, that's the most important number. That's the one I look at first. And they'll give you that number as either a Z score or more commonly as a percentage predicted. But in order to get that information, you need to put in the child's age and their height and their ethnicity and their gender. Okay. So, so, so once you take time. One, you look at that and you say, where are we? Is that good? If it was... If it's 99% predicted, that means it's just below average. Okay. If it's 101% predicted, it's just above average. But I think parents do tend to get quite encouraged by that if it's 100%. 100% means they're average. Right. Nobody really wants to be average, do they? Because I guess people would take presume 50% was average and 100% is brilliant. Exactly. So 100% means you're on the 50th centile for us. So often Z scores might be a, a more interesting or useful number for us to use. And they get a bit technical and people will get even more scared about the spirometer and back into the cupboard it goes. <laughs> so percentage predicted is useful because you can at least track it over time. But you have to know what that number means. It means 100% is average. So it should, the FEV1 should be between 80 and 120% predicted. And that would roughly equate in most age groups to somewhere between the second and the 98th centile. And you can plot lung function over time to check the child sticking on their centile line. Okay. So that's FEV1, yep. FEC. That's the, the amount in total that they can blow out the forced vital capacity. And that number is going to be at least as much as the FEV1. But if the child's continuing to blow out extra volume after the first second, then the forced vital capacity will be bigger than the FEV1. Yeah. In some age groups, 
So a six-year-old, for instance, who's quite short, they will completely empty their lungs normally in less than a second. So the FEV1 and FVC will be the same. And it won't be abnormal. You'll still see they might both be 100% predicted, even though the FVC is not bigger. But in most children, and certainly in older children, adults, that force vital capacity is going to be bigger than the FEV1 in nearly all circumstances. So that gives you an idea of how big the lungs are. If you want to know what the FVC means, it's directly proportional to the number of alveoli. So it's telling us something about the size of the lungs, and it's also indirectly telling us something about the, the number of alveoli that are there. So it's a nice, useful number. And we look at that and compare it to the FEV1. If a child has a low FEV1, but a normal FVC, they're struggling to squeeze the air out quickly. And the most common cause for that is that there's obstruction in the airways. There's something that's limiting that flow. And for us, if we're in asthma clinic, asthma is a reason for airflow limitations, yeah. we all know. And then do you often... So we look, sorry. That's all right, Ian. We, we look at the ratio of those two numbers together and we get what's called the FEV1, FVC ratio. That's how much can you get out in one second compared to how much you can get out in total. And in adults, a normal FEV1, FVC ratio is about 0 0.8. And so that will give an adult, if their FEV1, FVC ratio is 0 0.8, 100% predicted. But as I said, younger children, you expect them to completely empty their lungs quickly. So an FEV1, FVC ratio of 0.8 in an eight-year-old is clearly abnormal. It's obstructed, and you'll see a much lower percentage predicted value on the FEV1, FVC ratio if a young child is still blowing at an FEV1, FVC ratio of 0.8. So you need to look at the percentage predicted value of that number. The final measurement that I look at is the FEF2575. And that number always troubled me before I subspecialized in respiratory. What does that number mean? Because it's often referred to in papers. Really, that's just a measurement of the flow through the small to moderate sized airways, which we know are the parts of the airway that are affected by asthma. Often that number will be disproportionately low in a child with asthma. But I just do the flow volumes and look at them and think, hmm, that looks like <coughs> it's a normal shape or it's an abnormal shape. Looks like one of those numbers is low or two of those numbers are low. Maybe I'm going to try some salbutamol to see if there's any change. Okay. So thinking about circumstances in which you'd use this, do, do, I mean, is it largely a diagnostic tool for you or is it something to monitor uh, disease progression or compliance or those sorts of things or a bit of all of those so it's, it's a bit of all of the above as i said i do it every single time the patient comes to clinic because i can look at the serial values and they have of course it's like a one-off measurement of growth i don't think there's a pediatrician in the country who think i just need to measure the height and the weight once mm. that's fine they know and understand that if the child's on the 25th centile, that's not necessarily abnormal. We need to look where they're going and where they've been. If you've got no previous measurements, you need to see them again in three months and measure them again, don't you? Well, it's the same with the lung function. We need to know where they were and where they're going. 
And that's important. So serial measurements in clinic in a child with asthma are important to help you understand, is that centile line right for them? The second thing that's important is in diagnosis. And very commonly, I'd be referred children who have respiratory symptoms of either breathlessness or cough, and occasionally wheezing with all the limitations that we need to put on that word, because parents and even healthcare professionals will use that word quite loosely. And they may not mean the same thing that I mean when I say wheeze, but these patients will be referred. And if we think they might have asthma, then the nice guidance for diagnosis and monitoring of asthma suggests that you do the flow volume loops and if it looks like it's obstructed, you attempt to reverse it because the presence of salbutamol reversibility is diagnostic of asthma. If the FEV1 increases by 12% following salbutamol, then you know it's asthma because salbutamol works for asthma. It doesn't really work for very much else. Um, so one of the other things that you mentioned uh, as tools that you use uh, in your clinic is the exhaled nitric oxide. What's that all about? Um, well, that's, that's a nice box of tricks, actually, for us respiratory paediatricians. But I think for anyone listening to this podcast, I've already name-checked the nice guidance on diagnosis and management of asthma. And it is mentioned there as being part of the useful set of tools for diagnosis of asthma. Let's talk about what it is. It, it measures the breath concentration of a volatile gas called nitric oxide. And the amount of nitric oxide on the breath is increased in certain situations. And it's not just asthma, but asthma is one of those conditions which will elevate the exhaled nitric oxide. And in particular, it is a measure of the amount of TH2 type inflammation in the airways. Now, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the TH2 type inflammation, that's the particular type of inflammation that occurs in asthma and eczema and hay fever. And therefore, exhaled nitric oxide is also elevated in children with eczema and in children with hay fever, particularly at times when they've got a flare-up. So that does somewhat limit the usefulness of exhaled nitric oxide in clinical practice, but it's still a useful tool in itself. And the sensitivity and specificity and the different cutoffs at different ages are given in the NICE guidance. What we do or what we use it for in clinical practice is to add to the information we have about the patient. So a child who comes in who's got normal-ish looking flow volume loops, but you can't quite decide. (coughs) I might have borderline salbutamol reversibility. You do an exhaled nitric oxide measurement as well. And if you find that that's off the scale, you're thinking, well, wait a sec, that's quite a high measurement. Mm. It's more than 35. It looks like it's elevated. I think now on balance, this is more likely to be asthma. And I'm going to try an inhaler to see if it improves this. Okay. It's certainly very steroid responsive as a number, and it responds quite quickly. One of the main uses I have for it is in my clinic, if a teenager has stopped taking their treatment, their exhaled nitric oxide will start to go up. And I've used simplistically the idea of an HbA1c of the lung. Right. Because 
if you take bronchodilator immediately before you try your flow volume loops, so say you're in my waiting room and you think, well, I know Dr. Carroll's going to make me blow into that damn machine. Tell you what, I'll go to the toilet and preload with four doses of salbutamol. That way I won't have any salbutamol reversibility. Well, they won't, but their excel nitric oxide will still be quite elevated. And right. so I'll be able to tell that, that they've just pre-dosed with some salbutamol and I can catch them out. <laughs> so quite a, a useful sort of tool for compliance then. Well, that's how I use it, although it's not sold in any of the guidance for that. Mm. And there's probably relatively little evidence for it. There, there are other ways of assessing adherence, which are probably more accurate, but you need to have the equipment available to do it. So sure. things like adherence monitors. Um, so in, in my clinical practice, I did find it very useful. The other time it's exceptionally useful is when you've got a child with lots of symptoms, but their exhaled nitric oxide is surprisingly low. And then you think, hmm, maybe I got the diagnosis wrong. Mm. Maybe it's not asthma. Maybe it's, and then fill in the gaps, ciliary dyskinesia, cystic fibrosis. In those conditions, exhaled nitric oxide tends to be low, um, but the child still has lots of respiratory symptoms. So it, it, it is a useful test. And it gives a number which the parents like and actually the kids like. Because unlike having to look at the shape of it and then explain that that's not quite normal to my eyes, I can say, your excelled nitric oxide last time you came to see me, Timmy, was 80. And you've told me you've gone away and tried really hard with your treatment. You've come back today and it's 25. So I think you probably are getting more of that medicine in. And, and I quite like that analogy you had of the HbA1c for the lungs. I think that, that's very useful. Is it an easy test to do? Um, yeah, I, I think it is. <coughs> if anything, it requires less technique than the um, the, the, the forced expiratory manoeuvres. Mm. The child just needs to be able to hold the breath out for six seconds to get a measurement, to get a number. And I've been able to do it in children as young as four. Okay. Uh, I think it was a particularly smart and well-built three-year-old who was able to blow out for six seconds. But the, the, the key is they don't, unlike forced expiratory manoeuvres, they're not to blow out as hard as they can. They just need to sustain the blowout at a certain pressure. And that, that, that there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a, a game that the children can play where they can see on screen either getting a little girl across a river or moon in the air, yeah. or making a cloud go up and down or, or moving a needle on a target. And the kids actually quite like doing that. The difficulty with excelled nitric oxide is it comes in at about 10 or 11 pounds a test. So forced expiratory manoeuvres with a spirometer, once you've bought it, you've bought it. Yeah. You can do the test pretty much as many times as you want. And depending on how you print out your results, you can. it's it's relatively cheap. Okay. I... Excel nitric oxide, you need to buy a cartridge. And every time you do a test, that costs five, six, seven pounds. And by the time you add on all the other things that you might do, it comes in as about 10 or 11 pounds per test. Okay. So is it? does it tend to be the sort of... Uh preserve of the, of the respiratory paediatrician rather than the general paediatrician? Um, possibly, although I would still say that um, many departments will have one and it gives you excellent extra information about what's going on. Interestingly, it also seems to go up immediately before an exacerbation. And there have been times where I've been seeing someone clinic and said, no, I feel okay, but the excel nitric oxide is really, really high. 
And I say, we'll be really careful over the next few days because I think there might be an attack building. And my experience is that that does seem to be the case. So exhaled nitric oxide goes up early and often before other symptoms. Wow, that, that's, that, so that's really interesting, actually, as a way of, of trying to sort of head, head these things off before they become worse. There are home, um, handheld home use devices available now, um, but no one's actually proved they're going to make mm. any difference. Um, the, there is a very, very large study ongoing at the moment in the UK that's being run out of Aberdeen called the Racino study, and that's looking to see whether exhaled nitric oxide has a place in determining step up or step down of treatment right. in asthma. And, and, th- and that's going to be very important and uh, it's doing very well with recruitment at the moment. Okay, so, so field. look out for that one as a, as a potential future development then. Yes, and the, the study details are available. It's an NHR-funded study, so anyone who's particularly interested, you can actually see what the protocol's been for stepping up and stepping down using exhaled nitric oxide as, as a as a adjunctive a, a, a piece of information. Okay. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that, Will. I guess my, my sort of take homes for those for, for me and the ED is that we, you know, the, all these kids that we are seeing, if they are old enough, they must be having a peak flow done. And all those children who are being seen in any paediatric outpatients, really, there's no reason not to do spirometry. I think that's right. And I think for, the, for my ED colleagues, it is make sure they've got a plan. Yeah. Make sure they've done a peak flow. And make sure that you're happy before that child goes home that they're not going to be overusing salbutamol. All of those are risks for death from asthma. Brilliant. Will, thank you so much for your time. I shall let you get back to your conference now. But thank you very, very much for joining us today. No worries. Thanks very much, Ian.